crisis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. So, good afternoon, everybody. This is Scott Allen, and I am excited to have my guest today. This is Kathy Allen from Kathleen Allen and Associates. Mm-hmm. And Kathy, I don't even think I told you that I was going to do this, but I'm about to. And so get ready. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for you know, the warning. I appreciate Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so when I think of you, you wrote an article, oh gosh, it must be 15 years ago now, that was my favorite article for so many years. And I, the, the, the title of the article was Energy Optimization and the Role of the Leader. It was, it was an article that you actually co-authored. And that, that has just stuck with me for so many years. And so for each guest that I have on, I have three words that when I think of you or I think of the guest. And so for you, I've chosen systems, I've chosen nature, and I've chosen leadership. Oh, how cool. Because when I when I think of your work, at least much of the work that I've read, it incorporates these three topics that some people might think to be completely not connected, but they are. And so I want to start today by just getting into a little bit about you. How did you kind of get to where you are today? And then let's jump into a discussion about systems, nature, and leadership. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds great. So I think I've uh, always been fascinated by seeing how things connect. Mm. And once you go down that path, it's easy to start uh, experimenting with systems. And, you know, if we lifted up a sheet of paper, plain sheet of paper, and you said, took your class and asked them to divide into groups and name all the different things processes and people that touched this to get to a plain sheet of paper in your hand. Yeah. Some people might start at the the sawmill, right? Yes. yes. Some people might start with the uh, the forest that the raw material is coming from. Some people might go to distribution. You know, some people might go to marketing. Some people might say, well, I picked it up at, at this store. Yes. I've always kind of kept going back upstream to try <laughs> to see all of the connections and the and systems in a in a very simple way are it's about people who see who are able to see all the different parts of something mm. and then they connect them together and then as soon as they connect them together they're in this world of systems. They start saying, "Oh, well, there are patterns to this, all of these connections. There's the, the growing and the harvesting of trees. There's the getting them to the sawmill down the river. There's the doing the sawmill and turn it into pulp. And there's uh, 
then the process, and then there's the turning it into paper, and then there's the marketing and distribution, and then there's the store that you pick it up. And then you could begin to see all of the different parts. So for me, systems thinking is really something relatively obvious. First of all, you try to name all the parts you can. Yeah. Yep. Then you try to figure out, okay, are there themes or patterns in the system? Then your strategy and understanding of the system comes from the themes and the patterns. And then if you bring those together, you begin to see the interdependence of everything. So that's kind of what drew me into systems. And then nature has always played a huge role for, in my life. I've always loved the outdoors. I spent a lot of time growing up going to camp and doing canoe trips and stuff like and you're that. In the right, you're in the right state for that, right? I am. Minnesota. I am. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, well, and, your, and your most recent book, Leading from the, the roots. roots. Yeah. Yes. So even there's a there's a, a theme there, correct? Yeah, there is. And so I've been fascinated uh, since for about 20 years now with being more intentional, looking at nature and nature's design. I kind of, from a leadership perspective, I think that we're, we need to, we're working with people and we're trying to teach leadership and develop leadership so that people can go out and lead complex, dynamic interdependent systems. Yes. Organizations, communities, doesn't matter. And the systems framework is important, but nature is a complex, interdependent, dynamic system. Yes. And yeah. I don't think much of our traditional management and leadership books actually fully get how leadership is different in a complex system. Say more about that, Kathy. So, so how would you see leadership as being different in that context? I mean, that's, it's a really, really cool conversation. What are some hallmarks or what are some things that you think about or you're thinking about right now? Because again, we, we've touched on all three of those words really quickly, which I love. Systems, nature, leadership. So what are those connections you're making? So I think... Most of our management conventional wisdom is uh, was really good in closed systems that you okay. can control. So like a manufacturing our, plant or so our whole hierarchical framework of leadership assumes that people at the top direction is required from people at the top. That's what we call leadership, mm. and that people should be able to know everything and they should be able to control everything underneath them in the hierarchy. Mm. And that's not our world anymore. No, We're in no. an open system, which takes problems that we have tried to understand through a complicated lens to a complex lens. So in a complicated lens, your job is to analyze the parts, break the system down, figure out what part's not working, kind of like when your car is not going, you know, working so well. And then figure out, fix the part, and then rebuild the system, and then you have your solution. So we've taught people in our management and leadership courses how to analyze things, how to go down into the parts to figure out how to fix a broken system. But it's not a real good fit for a world that's an open system where systems bump into each other where there's a yes. high degree of, of uh, interdependence. So 
there's more disruption just naturally in the system. And so we have to start teaching people how to lead from a complex framework. And that requires a totally different strategy. So instead of going down into the parts, you actually have to go up to the balcony to see the pattern. Okay. And then your strategy comes from the meta view, not the detail view. Okay. And so give me an example. You, oh, for sure we're not in control, right? I mean, as soon as we become a, a global, interdependent, as you said, complex system. So, so take me through that. We're on the balcony. And do you have an example that comes to mind for you that, that you could share with listeners of that process of getting on the balcony and, and leading from this totally different perspective? So the COVID-19 virus pandemic yeah. Uh, there's been huge lessons on leadership uh, and observing people who are doing leadership uh, in this unique time. And uh, the virus itself is a complex, interdependent, highly disruptive and dynamic kind of event in our lives. Yes. yes. So what it's done is it's reminded us that we're connected. Yes. And in a very time. real, substantial, tangible way, right? Right. That right. From Wuhan, China, mm-hmm. we're connected here in in Ohio or in Minnesota. Right. In yes. a very, uh, it's almost yes. scary that, to think about. Right. That things <laughs> travel. Uh, we're yes. connected by global traveling and mobility. We're connected. Mm-hmm. Our economic, our public health, our our emotional responses, our community dynamics, you know, we're connected in all kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. So you have people who are trying to go down into the parts of the virus response and say, oh, we have to figure out this or we have to figure out this. But then you have your public health officials they tend to look for patterns. Okay. What's the pattern of infection? What's the pattern of uh, when is the, this kind of pattern of, an, of infection going to overwhelm or not overwhelm our hospital systems? Yes. What are the criteria that we need that tell us that it's safe to go out and resume our normal everyday pattern? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's popped up in our conversations about that is how many unknowns there are in the in the response to the coronavirus and how many unknowns there are and how we're going to individually respond after we come out of shelter in place. And you can see that some people are comfortable with the unknowns and how even though they're, some of them are quite big unknowns. And then you can also see how some leaders are trying to force certainty into the no- and make unknowns into knowns. Yes. And, then and they're they, feeling pressure to do so, right? Right. That's the old teaching of leadership is, oh, we're supposed to know. And we're, and so, and one of the beautiful things, as well as the frustrating things about systems that are connected, is that there are always time delays in the system. Mm. So you have a feedback loop. There are, a whole slew, there are a whole lot of feedback loops that are floating through our system now on the virus and our response to the virus. So in the U.S., we were slow to get testing up and running. We're still slow to get testing up and running. The consequences of that are going to continue to unfold over time. Mm -hmm. So we're used to, this is, again, the old traditional teaching of leadership is that time delays are very short. 
So you say, we're going to go here, and then everybody's supposed to follow, almost like a an engineer, you know, an engine in a train and the caboose. Wherever the engine goes, the caboose goes uh, in nicely, tightly coupled system. But the in growing your garden, there's uh, always time delays between tilling the soil, planting the seed, allowing the seed to germinate. The f- green shoot comes up with a time delay. It grows over the season, also with time delays. It blossoms, it brings fruit, and then we harvest it. But it, there's all this time in between that doesn't have that direct, you know, we have to have faith that things are germinating. Well, in the coronavirus, COVID-19, we have a bunch of things that are still unfolding in the system. So the connectivity that I talked about earlier in systems can't just be connecting various parts. It's also connecting time. Hmm. So how do our past actions create our present agenda of problems and how do our our response to our current problems create the future agenda of problems or challenges or mitigates things in the future. Well, and something that we're witnessing here in Ohio, I, I have not paid close attention to Minnesota, so maybe maybe we could kind of juxtapose the two experiences. But we have a, a head of our Department of Health, her name is Dr. Amy Acton, and our governor, DeWine, who have, you know, been recognized by the BBC for their efforts. They were, they were quick, they were early, they acted fairly strongly, they got ahead of things. And by many, many accounts, for those in the, in the middle, the average individual, they've done a really great job. Regardless of where you are, what side of the aisle you're on, they've, they've done a nice job. And, and, but they are facing this faction of people who are, are very pressure, they're, they're feeling pressure from these individuals who want those answers quickly. Right, and so there, there, there are these two competing commitments between how do we do what's right, uh, how do we ensure safety, with how do we provide people hope, and so I think it's this week that we're going to get some announcements. And so I think they're almost pressured to give us little nuggets of hope. Do you know what I'm saying? And to your point, this can't be rushed. I mean, there's some, some fundamentals that are not in place yet for us even to be able to kind of re-enter society in a safe manner. It'll be really interesting to watch this play out. I don't know if you saw the the footage. You told me that you went on a news diet yesterday that you did. <laughs> so maybe you didn't see this, but I think it was the governor of Florida opened up the beaches and, and, I saw that. and, and social distancing was not a thing. So this would be an example of uh, time delays and feedback. Mm-hmm. So you, you open up a beach and nobody gets sick that day, but they yes. might get oh, I'm fine. They might get infected that day. And then they might go home and get other people infected. And then those people who also are out there not thinking about social distancing will get other people infected. That's the nature of a pandemic and a highly infectious disease. You can't see it, so you don't know you have it until you get sick. And and so then there are going to be consequences over time. It might overwhelm the health system depending on how many people get sick. 
But this tension is what's, I think, really interesting, the tension between what people expect of leaders yes. to protect them from a threat, to mm -hmm. tell them what to do, to be knowledgeable and give hope, even if hope is not a realistic frame it's a, or it's a, not a guarantee without yeah. active collaboration with you. So one of the things that happens in a more distributive leadership model or a networked leadership model is you have more people self-organizing around a higher purpose. And that's mm -hmm. what's kind of intriguing to watch also is the each state and the people in the state have a different sense of how they need to show up. And there's mm -hmm. no apathy in social distancing. There's either you do it or, or you don't. And if you do it, we're depending on people showing up in a different way. So our old management literature struggled with things like creating dependency between the manager and the employee, you know, so it was like a drug deal. <laughs> it's like, okay, you're going to have to explain this one. <laughs> yeah. So I will give you safety and security if you do what I ask you to do. Basically, that's the deal. Yeah. And what like that contingent does, reward from, a, yeah. you know, or the baseline expectations. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And so what that creates is dependency and you don't think for yourself after a while. Mm -hmm. And so, but nature, this is why I love nature is nature is filled with self-organization and that's really how it, there's no CEO telling nature what to do, but there is a, <laughs> there's a deep, uh, important purpose, which is to create conditions conducive to the life of future generations. And, and every plant and every species and every ecology is designed to do just that. So they self-organize without needing direction to mm. move forward. So why are humans different? We have two things that are different from nature. We're still part of nature. So we still have this adaptive self-organizing capacity in us. But we also have consciousness and we have emotions. Mm. So if we don't manage our emotions well, and we're afraid of certain information, then we don't listen to feedback. So the monarch butterflies aren't waiting for Congress to agree that we have climate change. They are just- They know. They know. <laughs> they know. <laughs> but they're operating on instinct. So they just change their migration patterns, just like a whole slew of other species and animals and trees are doing. But we have a worldview. And if the facts don't fit into our worldview, and if we can't manage our emotions, then our emotions of fear or our overriding beliefs will cause us not to listen to certain data points. Hmm. Which gets to another leadership question, which is sure. what's the developmental responsibility leaders have to the people that they're serving? Oh, Can wow. They, Say more about that. So I think that one of the understated responsibilities of leadership is to develop people. Sure, yeah. And and not create that kind of transactional parent-child right. authority figure subordinate relationship, but we're actually developing the capacity and facilitating growth. Yes. And that's, that's a two-way street if done well. Yes, absolutely, because no leader is infallible. Everybody has hubris. And yes. the smart ones surround themselves with people who can 
brings assets and strengths and gifts and talent to the things that they're weak in. Mm-hmm. And that that's what great creates a great team. But we should be helping people see interdependence in our system, even if their worldview is one of separation. Mm-hmm. We should be helping people build their emotional intelligence so that they are aware of the emotions and how they're shaping the way they think and act and behave. And we need to develop organizational collective emotional intelligence. So that's a whole additional kind of thing that has to happen in a complex world. Where do we begin to better understand some of the fundamental concepts kind of embedded in how you see the world? The way nature has infected my uh, thinking about systems is that it has brought a concept of living systems to my framework. Okay. So as a human being, we're very in touch with the, we don't always consciously understand this, but as a one individual, we are a living system mm. inside our, the skins of the skin of our body. We have a oh, circulation sure. system and a, a nervous system and a, uh, autoimmune system and a circulation system and a neuroscience system kind of. Yes. And, and a there whole, are a whole colony of microbiota and yeah, and, 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 right. Right. That are dependent upon us. So we think it's a big mystery and it's, it is kind of, but we're actually a living system individually and collectively. Wow. So when you think about living systems, there are certain characteristics to them and anybody that enjoys uh, kind of reflecting on how to create change in a system can learn certain kind of general characteristics of living systems and use them to help change. So these are the ones that are on my radar. Living systems are interdependent, so they're all okay. connected. So that's like when, saying that's like saying we're not going to be alive if we don't have our respiratory system. Right. right. If we go back to the human analogy. Yes. Right? And in fact, that's one of the second ones, which is they're always in movement. So Mm. we breathe. If we put our hand in our heart, by our heart, we hear our heartbeat. Blood rushes through our system. The neurons fire in our brains. And if any of those things stop, we stop. Yeah. So how do we think about change in a system that is always changing? Hmm. So most of us think about change as something that we have to start up. But if we, going back to that optimizing energy article, it's it thinks about change as something that's already present. Hmm. There's already movement. So our job is to transform the energy that's already in the system, the mm-hmm. movement that's already in the system towards a higher purpose. You just made me think about sustainability. Most people understand that humans have had an impact on the earth, Uh correct? And most logical, reasonable people would agree that that's the case. Most individuals would logically then understand that if we continue on the course that we're on, we are altering the system in a way that we may not recover from and actually passing that along to the future generations. This is a time delay on steroids. 
So, so that's what I was going to say is why is it so difficult for us as human beings to, sh- because ultimately what we're doing here is we're shifting the system so that we're getting new results. We're, we're shifting the system so not as much CO2 is emitted into the atmosphere. We're shifting the system. And so why is it so difficult for us to be proactive in that shift? Again, it could be the emotions piece of it. It could be so many competing commitments that that, that notion is competing with capitalism or that, that notion is competing with any number of other elements in the system. But how do you think about an issue like that? We're harvesting right? the time delay of our actions 10 years ago, 40 years ago, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, are manifesting over time. We drop pollutants into a stream because it's cheaper in our manufacturing plant not to do something with them that either choose the products or those chemistry that is biodegradable because it's cheaper to get it mm-hmm. from some other source that's that's damaging. But we have a time delay between when we start putting pollutants upstream and when people start getting sick downstream. And because we haven't learned to close that loop faster, or to see the actions at a distance and how they mm-hmm. degrade the system. We haven't had any really good feedback loops that drop, that help us correct our behavior. Mm-hmm. So the way I'm currently thinking about this from a systems framework is that conventional wisdom in leadership, yeah. management, what we count as ethical and legal behavior and whatnot, has basically now delivered to us a degenerative system. A system mm. that has less vitality than okay. it used to have, less resilience than it used to have. It does more damage. And behind that is a way of thinking. So people think that extraction is okay, that mm-hmm. exploitation is okay, that you can be a leader of a company, you can extract talent from your employees, you can make corporate profit, you can distribute that unequally, and then you can turn that corporate profit into private wealth. That's a degenerative system. But there are certain certain thinking patterns that are attached to that. Short-term profit optimize one part of the system. In this case, generally, it's about profit. And then that gives you reasons to extract and exploit because you're making money, right? So it's a way of thinking. Now, what's really scary is that all of our systems have a version of optimizing one part of the system over everything else. Our Our health system optimizes the money exchange, whether it's a good business model. They don't really work for the whole person and the whole system. Yeah. The uh, even education is focusing on more of a part of the system rather than the whole system. Would you talk about that for a second, Kathy? So I came out of higher ed, and one of the things that would always I would always struggle with is that we would prioritize teaching above the neck instead of teaching the whole person. Okay. Oh, so say more about that. So when we teach above the neck, we're all only in the brain. We're not teaching emotional intelligence. We're not teaching people to grow their, their sense of purpose, their sense of Mm. service to the world. We're not Mm. teaching how to integrate their physical, social, spiritual, mental into one whole person. 
we're not optimizing the whole person. We're optimizing a part of this person. I love it. And you just made me think, have you ever read Miriam and Caffarella's Learning in Adulthood? Have you ever read that no, book for any I reason? Love okay. Title. <laughs> okay. So it's in its third edition now, and I'll put it in the show notes so so people can 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 find it. But they do a beautiful job. There's one table that just fundamentally shifted how I think about about leadership and leadership education. They they basically highlight five different uh, paradigms of learning. So they they discuss cognitivism, which is you know the stuff, knowing the stuff, and they and they discuss behaviorism, which is you know skill based, and then they discuss the humanistic version, humanism, and then social learning. And then constructivism, you know, making meaning of experience. And if we want to develop a leader in most colleges of business, which is where I, I, I sit, we might kind of download a bunch of theories, to your point, the head, we stay there, and we do that fairly well. But do you have a leader at the end of that endeavor? No, right. you have an individual who knows some leadership theory. Right. And, and, and so it's almost equivalent to if we wanted to create a surgeon, they need to have a certain set of knowledge. They need to have skill. They need to hopefully know about themselves, which we could probably you and I agree that that medical education falters in that humanistic domain most. Right. 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 And then we have the mentors and then we have the learning from experience. So I, I, what you're saying resonates for me because I think you're exactly right. The Jesuits have a term which is a Cura personalis. I teach at a Jesuit institution, and that's, uh, you know, developing the whole person, right? Uh-huh. Yes. And so, and so, I think all too often we're focused on one domain, and in my mind, that's limiting, right? Not only is it limiting, but from a systems point of view, there are certain criteria for helping us understand how to lead from a systems frame. The first is that you have to optimize the whole person. Okay. You can't, you can't optimize or the whole system. You can't make decisions by optimizing the part. The more you optimize a part, like the intellectual domain in higher ed, the less you optimize the whole person. Wow. Think about that for a moment. I love it. I so love it. when we look at how world leaders are making decisions around the coronavirus, the ones that I think whose countries are going to come out of this better economically and every other way are the people who are making decisions from a whole perspective, whole system perspective. The second is that you have to have data. So systems to understand systems, you have to have aggregated curated whole systems data. So Mm -hmm. in higher education, going back to the domain of the head versus the rest of the person, sure, uh, that would mean that we would need to be assessing and tracking holistic development. Yes. Instead of academic achievement in the classroom only, right? And then the third is that you have to reward cooperation, which is a nature design principle. It banks on diversity. It rewards cooperation because that's how information gets spread and so you can aggregate the whole is that you have to be in relationship with each other Mm. you have to be able to actively cooperate with each other because information sits in different places so going back to the degenerative what's the alternative if you don't want to participate and lead or contribute to a degenerative system then you have to move 
the way you think and the way you practice leadership towards a restored, sustainable, restorative, and regenerative framework. So my thinking is we kind of have to then start looking at every single one of our theories that we teach, for example, mm. and say, sure. is there a parts bias in this theory? Okay. Does this theory reinforce one way of thinking at the expense of an integrated understanding of the system? Yes. So if we reinforce profit over the health of the whole system. You know, there. if we don't see nature as a primary stakeholder uh, in our decision-making, for example, or if we don't see inequity as that needs to be part of our decision-making, then we know that our, our theory is reinforcing a degenerative framework. So we have to analyze that, and then we go up to getting a little better as we become more conscious, and eventually we get to sustainability, which is doing no harm going forward, but it doesn't restore the damage that we've already done. Yes. So then the, so I see degenerative is like a minus 100. Sustainability is like a zero. We're not doing better, but we're not doing, we're somewhat better, but we're not doing worse. So we're, so it's like do no harm going forward, but we still have high pollution and other kinds of things. Then you have to get to restorative, which is how do we restore the balance in our system? Hmm. And then eventually you get, that's like a plus 50. And then eventually you get to regenerative. So nature, this is why I love nature as a teacher, is that it is a highly regenerative system. Hmm. Nature has gone through five mass extinctions in the 3.8 billion years of history on this earth. And it has regenerated every single time Mm -hmm. as we are living examples of pretty amazing, really. And so what is the design from nature that can teach us to create regenerative organizations? Mm -hmm. And I don't see, you know, it's starting to pop up. There's a, Christopher Wald wrote a book on uh, designing regenerative cultures, a multi kind of look at an integrated way to think. And I think our leadership needs to kind of bring more complexity into it, needs to move towards this teaching regenerative design, not exploitive design, because higher ed has colluded in the exploitation. Interesting. You know, and look at all the management books that have been touted, let's say, over the last 20 to 30 years, and how those leaders have been, certain leaders have been lifted up as great leaders because they destroyed companies because and mm-hmm. made more profit. That's not a way to help the world evolve. And that's, that's basically the criteria that nature uses. If nature were going to define profit, it would be that Profit in nature is defined as the evolution of the whole system. Hmm. I got to think about that for a moment. Profit would be defined as evolution of the whole system. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And when you think about the time that it takes to regenerate that whole system, any human being would go insane. But that's the time it genuinely takes to regenerate <laughs> well except for this moment, except for this moment in time 
So one of uh, one of the things I'm noticing in my coaching clients as they're processing and trying to make sense of this COVID-19 and what their organizations are going to look like on the other side, there are three levels of decision-making that they're doing. One mm. is kind of immediate, either how do we keep the doors open? How do we keep being able to pay our paychecks? And uh, what kind of essential programs are we doing? Wh- who do we need to lay off because we can't we can't financially keep paying them anymore given what's changed and, or sheltering in place or whatever. So there, there's one phase. So they first start to try to figure out, okay, what do we need to do to eventually on the other end, keep the doors open and keep the purpose of the mission running. Mm-hmm. The second phase is what are the new partnerships or combinations and collaborations and cooperations that we could be in cooperative partnership with so that we come out of it with a different design and a different yeah. configuration, but yeah. perhaps with a more resilient model. And then the, the third conversation is about deep redesign. Hmm. So they're basically saying, well, what if? No, so one foundation that I work with has been doing leadership development in a cohort face-to-face uh, way for 30 years with yes. extraordinary results in community leadership. But they're looking at this and saying, what if we can't do that going forward? Then how do we do this work? Yeah. And so they're saying maybe our job goes back to old time philanthropy and we build trusted partnerships with people in community who are living, sleeping and working there. And that they are gener- they are creating and designing with our partnership finances and ex- knowledge to mm-hmm. actually do the work. And so mm. it changes their staffing pattern. It, it raises questions all over the place about who are they going to become. Yep. And can can they thrive at a different level? Right. You know, I, I had a I had a a client that I've worked with say to me, her her question was, what I'm reflecting on now is how we use this as an opportunity to thrive and to, 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 she didn't use the word redesign, but it was, it was, how, how can we, what questions do we need to be asking now to help us thrive on the other end of this? And in some ways, kind of modernize. So I go back to your comment about education, right? There's so much opportunity in education right now, right. potentially, if people see it as a potential opportunity. I don't, I'm not saying to be opportunistic, but there's opportunity to facilitate change and, oh, yeah. and probably update of an outdated system that would likely be attractive transformational and it's learn and it's a potential to facilitate learning in our students right really hit all five of those different dimensions versus one or two that we right. currently kind of do so for example i've often thought that our educational system generally is designed to reinforce dependency hmm. between student hmm. and faculty member yes the expectation of a student in a classroom is that the faculty member should be initiating and organizing their learning. But if this was from a nature perspective, nature would say every single person in that space has to initiate and organize their own ability to learn. Hmm. And they should be demonstrating it on their own without depending on the teacher 
to reinforce direction or hmm. evaluation of whether yep. they're doing it or not. So in that way, this is a different way higher ed colludes with traditional management and traditional leadership is that we're training people to look to people in authority to tell them what to do. One of the promises of online education is that when I've taught online courses, I've found that that relationship changes because the only way online education works is if each individual who's in the class is initiating and organizing their own learning process. Mm. And what a well, thought that is. Yes. I mean, it, it it's fundamentally shifts everything. Yeah. In a really, and, and it gets back to your article, uh, the, the energy optimization article, where the energy is there. Uh-huh. It's are we unleashing the energy? Right. Or are we... Stuffing it, down. It, stuffing it down <laughs> you know yes you know it's it raises totally different leadership questions i think yeah. uh-huh. i was talking to one of my coaching clients she was working in a secondary education role and her her whole thing is kind of driving a career pathways program to hook students teachers and uh community businesses together into uh, a more integrated whole systems frame, right? Mm -hmm. But on her last call, she said, this was her observation coming out of COVID-19. Why are we trying so hard to hold on to the old normal instead of running as fast as we can towards the new? Wow. That is beautiful. So I just got chills when I think about that. I know. Why are we trying to so hard to hold on to the old normal instead of running as fast as we can towards the new? Hmm. That's really the possibility coming out of COVID-19 is that we do have the possibility in a high level of disruption to start bringing more regenerative principles into the way we think or design our organizations going forward. Hmm. Or design our classes, right? What's a regenerative classroom look like? Oh, I love it. Wow. Have you seen, have you, are people writing about that? No, not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> because we're steeped, you know. We have a, yeah. over, what, 100, 200 years of conventional wisdom floating around in our, our worldviews and in our deep background assumptions, which is one of the things we have to get. We have to start teaching people how to recognize what's the background assumption that we're holding on to. Hmm. What what is no longer fitting the purpose and of the or fitting the world and the environment that we're leading in? Yeah, which yep. is I think one of the reasons why you don't see everybody solving the COVID nineteen from a complex framework, open system framework. We see still see people trying to piecemeal it. I was talking to another colleague in um, Hong Kong last week, and he was telling me how I asked him how how they were approaching the whole virus. Are they sheltering in place, et cetera, et cetera? He said, "No, we're all everything's open, business as usual." But that said, we're testing 350 million people, small island, city state. We've wow. heard, we have a huge testing program and a huge contact tracing program that's very, very robust. Yeah. And everybody is wearing face masks, but restaurants are open. The economy is open for business. People are going to the office. Everybody's wearing face masks. Everybody's washing hands. 
you know, the whole community, the whole population is fundamentally working with data, sophisticated science to protect the whole system. And cooperating. And cooperating. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, you know, this is, these are some of the questions I have for higher ed and for businesses is how do we teach each other how to think in this way? And I personally think nature is a beautiful way to do that because mm. it is the system that we're living in. And that's pretty much why I wrote the book is I wanted to give people a roadmap for using nature's design and living system frameworks to redesign their teams and their organizations and give them language because a lot of people are already intuitively doing this. Hmm. Well, and, and so we're, we're close on time. What are some practical tips you have for educators on helping them to incorporate this content in their work? Two-part question, educators, what do they have to have on their radar? How can they develop their skills to have this topic as an important piece of their work? And then learners. So let me start with learners because that floated to the top first. Sure. I think as learners, stop giving away your personal responsibility and power to initiate and organize your own learning. I love it. So we, we come from nature. We are not apart from nature. And honestly, if a squirrel or a snail or an ant can self-organize all the time, we're certainly capable of it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what are we going to do? You know, are we going to choose to operate? We have this adaptive capacity and this self-organizing capacity. It's deeply embedded in who we are, but mm -hmm. we have, it has been kind of squeezed out of us for one okay. reason or another, whether it's through kindergarten and first grade and junior high and high school. So by the time we get to college, we keep defaulting to the teacher at the front of the room. Or, you know, so I would say if it was just one thing, start initiating and organizing your learning in the same way you do with your social life. Hmm. And just yeah. your passions that you, I mean, we, we, are all, we are all learning all of the time we in are. that space, right? It's very yeah. natural and easy, right? but then we're put in this, this kind of fictitious context where all of us, and to your point, it's authority, subordinate. It won't serve you. It's the secret sauce for work, for uh, success in life is your ability to self-organize. Hmm. So that's what I would say to learners. And then for teachers, I have a couple of thoughts. One is to use your own energy as a diagnostic for when you're taking on too much responsibility for other people's learning. Mm. So if you're in, doing all the work, <laughs> your energy is going to show it. You're going to have less energy, less passion, less excitement going into the yeah. classroom because yeah. you're carrying the burden of everybody else's learning. Well, why, well, I had a I had a friend of mine, a colleague once. Uh, I he I said I'm so drained after class because I feel like I'm on for two and a half hours, and and he said to me, and it was one of those moments where I just I almost wanted to cry. But he said, "Why are you taking on the responsibility for their experience?" <laughs> Got it. One. That's exactly it. And then I think the other thing that I would say to um, teachers is to do an audit of the theories that they're teaching and mm. see whether they're 
whole system frameworks or whether they're teaching from a, a single sector of the whole or the larger system and then start searching for other content that might evolve the whole instead of a part of the system. Any, any theory that uh, implies that you can control the outcome probably is a theory whose time has passed. Okay. I love it. So we're going to finish with a quick speed round. I have four questions for you. What are you streaming right now or listening to? I tend to learn more through reading rather than streaming. So that's... Kathy Allen, have you ever watched Planet Earth? I haven't. Please watch that, Planet okay. Earth. Good. It's, a, All right. it's on Netflix. It's a BBC show. And watch One Strange Rock. We watch these with our children, and it is they're some of the most beautiful shows you will ever experience. They're just magical. So Planet Earth, okay, and then One Strange Rock. So have any favorite podcasts that you listen to um, that stand out? No, although... I like Michael Mead a lot. Okay. Uh, he's, you know, he's one of his lovely pieces that I listened to recently was that there, in a, in these kind of major disruptions, there people come out of them in two different ways. They either become, they come out of them as a smaller person or a bigger soul. Oh, wow. I love it. Michael Mead. June Hawley uh, doesn't do podcasts, but she does this network weaver newsletter that is quite good about helping us see systems in non-hierarchical ways okay i think she's from ohio i'm not sure oh wonderful wonderful and what are you working on right now from a personal growth standpoint we are all we are all <laughs> continually in process <laughs> so i am uh, i'm finding this time to be very generative and i'm starting i'm working on a tiny little ebook on living systems and how it changes leadership if you look at your organization as a living system i love it i think to your point the, the quote from michael mead was smaller person or bigger soul so you're focusing you're focusing on the the latter of those yeah. two, right? A generative a generative time. Yeah. And I think the other kind of thing that I'm thinking about is I think my observation is that the people who are coming out of this with a bigger soul are people who are much clear who are clear about how they are here why they are here to and who are they here to serve. Hmm. So they're asking the service question instead of the protect self protective question. Yes. How can my work serve the humanity? And they're coming out of this in a different way, more psychologically mm. healthier, I think. I agree. I agree. It's it, it's like the friends of ours who are focused on gratitude and what they have and how they can be of service to others, to, to your point, and, and those who are focused on what they've lost and, and what they have to give up. And those are two totally different frames. And, yes. and one is generative in a very beautiful way because I, so that your statement resonates for sure. We started off with three words, <laughs> systems, nature, and leadership. Did I, did I get the three words to describe yeah. Kathy Allen fairly well? <laughs> I think so. I think so. I love that. That was very nice. Thank you. <laughs> uh, well, Kathy, you have given all of us a lot to think about and I'm so excited. I cannot thank you enough for being with us today. 
Oh, you are one of my favorite leadership thinkers. You are always at 50,000 feet (laughs) looking at the whole versus Uh, the parts, which I so appreciate about you. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was lots and lots of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, take care and be well. Thank you. I will. After each episode, I take a couple days to reflect. And my conversation with Kathy Allen certainly gave me several items to think about. So for aspiring leaders, she said, stop giving away your personal responsibility and power to initiate and organize your own learning. For leadership educators, she said, use your own energy as a diagnostic for when you are taking on too much responsibility for other people's learning. She also suggested that we do an audit. Do frameworks and theories that we're teaching provide learners with a holistic perspective, or is there a parts bias to the theories that we're teaching? She suggested that any theory that assumes that you can control the outcome is a theory whose time has passed. Now, a couple things that are going to stick with me as far as big questions. So this whole notion of a parts bias in our current theories of leadership, I'm going to continue to reflect on that comment because I think it's critical that we are teaching and sharing theories that help our learners look at the whole versus the parts. And we also had this interesting segment where we discussed what a regenerative classroom could look like. Now, I don't have a clear answer to that question, but it's something that I'm going to continue to think about in the days and weeks ahead. For those of you who'd like to learn more, please pick up Kathy's book, Leading from the Roots. I promise you, she is one of the great thinkers of our time, and the way she's thinking about leadership is going to stretch your thinking to new levels. Have a great day, everybody, and as always, thanks for checking in. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.